Welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me. And I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Bishop Mark Seitz of El Paso, Texas. El Paso is in the far western corner of Texas and right along the border with Ciudad Juarez. And we talk about migrants all the time. It was a very big issue in the last couple of elections. And many families come here to this area where Bishop Mark Seitz is the bishop. And so he has care and concern for all these people, including the migrants and refugees from Mexico and Central America that come to his border town. He's a bishop that's originally from the Midwest, did not grow up having a lot of experience with people of color. And yet here he is as a bishop with a population that is predominantly Latino, people of color, and how living, loving, and shepherding this flock has impacted his understanding of racism and motivated him to respond beyond philosophy, but into concrete action. If you remember in August of 2019 in El Paso, there was a mass shooting at the Walmart, and the shooter had basically white supremacist notions. And Bishop Mark Seitz was right there. That's in his diocese. And in response to that mass shooting, Bishop Seitz issued a pastoral letter that was insightful, that may make people uncomfortable. And I I read the letter and I'm still meditating on it, meditating on what he said and some of the challenges that we might have in trying to be authentic Christians and being in solidarity and loving those who are harmed by racism, as well as those who are harmed by their embrace of racism and how he calls us to respond to them as well. And also, I wanted to speak with him because way back during the George Floyd protests, I saw Bishop Mark Seitz and his priests take a knee and hold the sign about Black Lives Matter. And it caught my attention because I hadn't seen any bishop in the United States do that. And I thought, this is somebody that we need to speak to because he's clearly attentive to those who are suffering and has a heart for those who are suffering. And furthermore, will take action, even in a way that may not be popular, but he does it because he believes it's right and he's not afraid to look into the face of those who are suffering and embrace them and be in solidarity with them. So stick around for that conversation. As you know, I'm doing this podcast with America Media, where real, honest conversations are happening around the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. For example, we've been tackling systemic racism and putting forward voices like Bishop Mark Seitz because we want to come to an understanding of what this means for us as Catholics. How do we address it? How do we combat it? And all of that happens with America. And that's unique in Catholic media. That's really unique in all of the social media landscape today. And the best way to access all of our content and to support my podcast is to get a digital subscription to America. Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Bishop Mark Seitz is up next.
My guest today is Bishop Mark Seitz of El Paso, Texas, which is right on the southern border with Mexico, across from Ciudad Juarez. We're recording this on August 4th, a day after the anniversary of the mass shooting in El Paso back in 2019. The gunman was only 21 years old and he targeted Mexicans. He published an anti-immigrant white nationalist manifesto online before the attack. And Bishop Seitz, I wanted to talk with you because you have been so close to the community, passionate community, loving the community, and even knowing a victim of that mass shooting. Could you talk with us about that? Well, thank you, first of all, for having me on with you, Gloria. It's a pleasure to be with you and to have an opportunity to reflect on that event and the deeper issues surrounding it. On the day of the shooting and the days that followed, I had the opportunity to get to know a number of the families of the victims. And that 23rd victim was one of them. His name was Guillermo. He was known as Memo Garcia. And he was a soccer coach Mm -hmm. who was out in front of the Walmart, a coach for a young girls team. I'm not sure exactly the age, but they're like middle school girls. And they were out in front on that Saturday morning to raise some funds for uniforms and things like that. The team was there and several of the coaches. And as the shooter entered the Walmart, some of his first shots were reserved for those people out there trying to raise funds. And Memo was shot. They managed to keep him alive in intensive care for eight and a half months. But they were tough, tough months. And a lot of the time he was unconscious. But at other times, I had the chance to visit with him a little, offer him the anointing of the sick and so on. I got to know his wife quite well, Mm. and she was just a model of strength and faith. I always was happy to see Jessica because this young woman, she's in her late 20s, I would guess. Oh, wow. They have two children, like six and nine, but her faith taught me, you know, The way that she dealt with the whole experience um, Mm -hmm. was just amazing. And when he died, I I had his vigil service and his funeral. You know, and I think people, you know, people hear a mass shooting and and it's over, but they may not remember or realize the real impact it has on families long after it fades from the headline. And you're talking about your experience with Mimo. I hope drives home to a lot of listeners, that even after the person may be arrested and even after we've accounted for everyone that's been harmed, that there's still a lot of harm, trauma going on. And I imagine these two children, the impact of finding out what has happened to their father. And they were present when he was shot. Oh my goodness. They were, I think at that time, running as they'd been told to run, Mm -hmm. Uh, but dad didn't have a chance the diabolical terror of that moment was, it's just hard to imagine. Uh, there's a young couple, and I've come to know their families. They had their six-week-old baby there. 
mm. also mm. in their 20s. They just stopped to pick up some things for the five-year-old daughter's birthday, which was on that day. Right. The five-year-old wasn't with them, but the little baby was in their arms. I, we don't know whether the father or the mother, both of them, the father and mother were shot and killed. The baby was dropped when they were shot oh. and had a contusion on the head and a broken finger. But obviously that baby uh, became an orphan yeah. in that moment. So many stories. I We could spend our whole hour just talking about those. Well, here's the thing that has just, when we look at these kind of evil, evil acts, and we think about the things that contribute to them, what you point out in the pastoral letter that the evil motivating attacks like what happened in El Paso is deeper than you know, mere lack of access to mental health care or is deeper than the constant pressures on families. And you point us to, you know, what else you think could explain the perversity of attacks on African-Americans, Jews, Muslims, Sikhs, and other communities, and you get straight to it. You're basically like, it's racism and white supremacy, and we have to do something about it. Yet, I've had people tell me recently, just so assuredly. White supremacy no longer exists. Racism no longer exists. And I, I'm like, do these people understand these are grave sins? And it isn't just a matter of passing a law that makes it go away. And also that we have a part in doing something about that. And I was struck that you, in your pastoral letter, Night Will Be No More, on the evil of racism and white supremacy, you basically said we can't just sit by and you know just say i'm i'm not racist we have to actually fight this evil of racism and and here's the thing people are very troubled by the term anti-racist and so help us understand what you mean by that term and how people should receive it when you say we should be anti-racist yeah <laughs> you know it strikes me that one of the problems of racism just as is the case with so many sins, uh -huh. is that the sinner doesn't recognize their part in the sin. They have to look within their own heart at, at themselves with honesty to be able to recognize this within them. But if a person is truly not a racist, then at least that person needs to be concerned about the fact of racism in our society, right. about the fact that it's present, that it's baked in to so much of the way that our society thinks. Okay, thank God, you know, a person can look at himself and say, I'm free of that, you know. Right. But you have to recognize that it's present. And as long as you deny it, then you're all, in a certain sense, convicting yourself mm. because it, it is present. And I think that's what moved me to write, you know, I grew up in Wisconsin, mm -hmm. and I really didn't have any friends of color, you know. Right. They didn't live where I lived. Right. I think that's true even in many of our cities, you know. We right. just live in our little ghettos. And it's easy in that environment to look at something like racism as an historical problem we read about in the history books. Right. We don't see it. I didn't see it. And it's taken something like this event to make me look up and say, oh, my gosh. Right. Yeah. 
It's not just something of the past. This man acted because he was afraid that people who were white were going to lose their what? Their power, their possession Mm -hmm. of this Mm -hmm. country. Yeah. You know, it's shocking. It's shocking, but it's really so present. I mean, same thing with the gentleman that murdered the nine parishioners in Charleston, South Carolina. He is like, you know, there's a race war and blacks are so awful to white people and all these kinds of things. And probably a lot of people listening are like, oh, I, I don't think like that. And I don't say those things. But I can tell you, if you listen to certain television show hosts, the kind of language they use that people are coming from the southern border and they're going to dilute your vote. You know, the coded language, which is clearly meant to impart that kind of feeling that they're invading, that they're unrightfully and unlawfully invading our country. He doesn't mention that these people are citizens because only citizens of the United States can vote and that they have a right to vote. Instead, he says, and their voting dilutes your vote. Yes. So it's us and them. Us and them, and and somehow as if their participation, their rightful participation in their country is an affront to white people. And you mentioned in your pastoral letter that this thinking that the policies, the possessions, the wealth, all these things of this country belong to white people alone. Yeah. And I see that thinking and looking at these television hosts, some of them are prominent also on social media. There was one a prominent self-identified Catholic that talked about, yeah, we need to do more to make sure more people cannot vote. And it was just really shocking to see this from a person, to say this so publicly in the year 2021. And these are the kinds of things I think that in a coded way, they yeah. use coded language to pass on these white supremacist notions. And I'm sad to see so many of my fellow Catholics, who I know are good people, retweeting these folks and, and following these folks or liking their comments. And I'm like, do you, not, do you not understand a lot of what they're saying is anti-gospel or as you say in your pastoral letter, anti-reign of God? Mm-hmm. Let me just say, it's not an issue that is easily dealt with because there's a certain mixture of legitimate concerns with those Mm -hmm. that are not. Right. Things that we should discuss as a nation, as a political body, and so on. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody would deny that. For instance, in voting, you know, a highly contested issue right now, and we're not politicians. I'm certainly not but we can see both sides of an issue mm-hmm. that, yeah, nobody wants fraudulent votes going exactly. on. Right. You know, we're rightly concerned that we have a system that is, is correct. But the legitimacy of that is not to deny that there could be other motives that are mixed in and we need to notice it and we need to identify those things courageously so that we can have a legitimate conversation about voting, about immigration, about addressing the historic presence of racism in our country and, and so on. You know, it's interesting that you say, you mentioned in the pastoral letter, a lot of history of what happened in El Paso and in the border region, a lot of racism, a lot of problems. And, and you mentioned that, you know, that does have an impact today. 
Whereas sometimes I think people are like, oh, that's so long ago. It can't possibly have an impact. But when I think about the faith, we know that the effects of a sin can outlive the persons who committed the sin, right? Mm-hmm. And it's somehow people think that with racism, you know, it's just it's over and it doesn't have any impact. And I'm like, why are we failing to grasp that it does and that we need to do something about it? In fact, in your pastoral letter, you have a key quote. I think it's um, number 59, paragraph 59. I'm not sure. But as the builders of the temple of justice here in the Americas, it is not enough to not be racist. Our reaction cannot be non-engagement. We must also make a commitment to be anti-racist in active solidarity with the suffering and excluded. Wow, when I read that, that made me sit up, okay? Mm -hmm. We must be in active solidarity with the suffering and excluded. And there's another piece you quoted in the letter, I believe, from a poetess. You say, what can they do but threaten us with resurrection? Oh, that is like just a song in my ear. What can they do but threaten us with resurrection? What a wonderful phrase to remember. Whenever we're fearful about doing what's right, whenever we're fearful of the consequences of standing with the oppressed, with the downtrodden, whenever we're fearful of being put on our own cross, we should remember, what can they do but threaten us with resurrection? Amen. I mean, that is that was so... In talking about such a heavy topic, to have that was just so beautiful. And you could have other parts of scripture, yeah. of course, that are quoted yeah. that are so beautiful. But this quote from this poet, that was amazing. You know, one thing that people fail to notice is that sin has consequences yes. in people's lives. And they can even be generational consequences. Yes. yes. They don't just evaporate. They don't just go away. Even when the sinner has died, they continue to have an impact on the victim, on the victim's self-image, on the victim's ability to reach their full potential. And these aren't just cutesy psychological issues. These are issues that have a long-term and serious and measurable effect on people who have experienced discrimination. Now, we'd like to say, oh, it happened 200 years ago. Yeah. Baloney. You know, one, (laughs) one thing that this event has done for me is that it surfaced some things. You know, the interesting thing about racist behavior is that the victim of it doesn't want to talk about it. True. Because it's a hurt to them. And they don't think others outside of their experience will even understand. A big part of their life and effort is to present themselves as not wounded by this, but forging (laughs) forging onward. But this gave me an opportunity to talk to the people of this diocese, and I have been amazed. You know, I say, did you ever experience anything where you felt you were treated a certain way because you were a person with brown skin? Right. Mm -hmm. And at first they might even say no, and then they'll say, well, I remember once when I was a kid traveling with a team and I was going from here to Dallas, Right. right? And we stopped, and the people in the restaurant said, we're not going to serve that person, that person, that person. This was like 
40 years ago, mm-hmm. I talked to a Native American person who talked about how the Native Americans in school were treated by their peers and by others. They tried to hide their Indian heritage to pass as an Hispanic, you know, to identify themselves as a Native American was not acceptable when they were in school. And you don't have to look back very far for people to have had those experiences or even, sad to say, in our own time. You know, when they, whoever was telling you about their experience at a restaurant, I was traveling with a group of teenagers. It was a social group that we were in, and we were coming through North Carolina, and we stopped at Howard Johnson's. And in effect, they just didn't want to serve us. This was in the 80s. This mm-hmm. was in the late 80s, and these people didn't want to serve us. It was just one of the most awful experiences I've ever had in my life. Then you had some of the patrons in the place calling us racial slurs and saying we wouldn't serve those, you know, what. And I mean, this was in the late 80s. So these things still happen. They do. And it just goes to show that we still have a lot of work to do. And so one of the things that I want to ask you, Your Excellency, is Mm. what was your evolution on racism? Like, how did you come to understand the reality of racism? Well, as I mentioned, I think the mass shooting was a very strong awakening because it just hit me. Mm. For this person to get to this point where somehow he thought it was okay to kill people of color, kill Mexicans, as he Mm -hmm. said, and he used the word Hispanic, I believe, also in his letter, his manifesto, that he came out of a whole atmosphere that somehow legitimized, in his own mind anyway, this behavior. Mm -hmm. And then I began to connect the dots and realize how political speech had opened the door to this. You know, if you call the arrival at the border of hundreds of people who are seeking asylum, that means that they're fleeing from threats against their lives, their children's lives, and so on. If you call that an invasion, you know, these days, if you say they're bringing these diseases, these are all code words that bring a certain gut-level response of fear, and they're calculated to do exactly that. And when we make a person in our own mind an enemy, an other, an alien, an Mm -hmm. illegal, we don't say they did something illegal. We say this person is an illegal What we're doing is we're automatically claiming that somehow their human dignity is not on the same level as mine. So these things began to be even clearer in my mind. Mm -hmm. But dealing with, I've always as a priest had the opportunity to work with Hispanic Latino community, whether in Mm -hmm. my parishes in Dallas and of course here. And I can see it now, you know. I can see what I couldn't see before. I just see how we stereotype and judge a whole people 
because of one reason, the color of their skin. We'll be back in a minute. I imagine serving the community, loving the community, walking with them, smelling like the sheep, opened your eyes to what their lives are. And also, I'm sure, for those who are willing to share some of their hurtful experiences with you. How could someone that's listening to us right now, and maybe they're having an awakening on this matter, they're having some interior introspection, and they're like, ooh, yeah, I am. I do have an animus for some reason. I don't have an attitude of welcome. I don't, I have an attitude of, you know, just stay away (laughs) or whatever it is. You know, it's not one of welcome. It's not one of seeing this person or persons as members of their human family that they want to love, care for, and protect. Maybe they even feel kind of nothing. You know what I mean? They're just like, yeah, that's their issue or whatever. But they're having an awakening right now as they're hearing this conversation. What advice would you give to them to be able to lean into or to develop more their sensitivity on the matter? I think I refer to this in the letter, in the pastoral letter, but I've also referred to it in other contexts. I've pointed out that as a priest, as a bishop, we're called to be doctors of the soul. And one thing a doctor does is diagnose. You know, you have to have a certain mm, sensitivity, a certain awareness in order to do a diagnosis. And my diagnosis looking at so many of my brothers and sisters today is that we suffer from hardness of the heart. Mm. It's a very serious ailment. Hardening of the arteries leads to all kinds of strokes and heart attacks and things like that. And we have a serious spiritual illness if we do not allow our compassionate and merciful Lord to touch our hearts and to move us when we recognize the suffering of our brothers and sisters, those who are not given a name that they can be proud of, who are not treated as a fellow human being. If we can't be moved by the suffering of those who arrive at our borders without an extra shirt on their back or knowing where the next meal is coming, without a place to go, who have lost their home, have left everything they know, and are caught between worlds. We've got a problem, and it goes well beyond our treatment of that other. It's the problem is with us. Mm. The problem is within us. The primary victim of racism or any kind of attitude that makes less than human the person who is suffering Mm -hmm. uh, is within the one who has that lack of compassion. I will say, Your Excellency, there's a problem of... So when we call people illegal, what it automatically does is it makes them guilty of something. And we have, at least I would say, among Catholics, actively pro-life, this idea that things are wrong when someone's innocent. And so when you paint someone as an illegal, they're guilty of something and therefore they don't merit the same kind of concern as someone that's innocent. So you saw that play out with the murder of George Floyd, people pointing to 
his past brushes with the law instead of them being able to understand, no, he's regardless, he's a person that's made in the image and likeness of God and worthy of dignity and respect. So this idea that someone has to be just like Jesus Christ himself, you know what I mean? Completely yeah. innocent before we can be concerned with, we want these perfect people, you know yes. what I mean? Per- and I say perfect with air quotes. As if somehow we ourselves were perfect and that's what made God love us. No, farthest thing from it, right? Yet somehow we can't extend that same loving attitude because we demand a certain perfection for other human people that God himself didn't demand of us before he loved us. That's a wonderful point. And it's so important to remember that uh, the person we look at who is a sinner, you know, first of all, should be ourselves, right? Yes, Uh, indeed. But on the question of calling somebody illegal, what a lot of people don't even realize is that many of the people they're calling illegal aren't illegal because there's a right right. of asylum. But Mm -hmm. if I could bring up a related point that you just alluded to in passing, my primary involvement in terms of social justice concerns in most of my priesthood was not this issue. It was the pro-life issue, Mm -hmm. the issue of the unborn child. And for me, the parallels are unmistakable. You know, how we can fail to love the person we do not know The person we have not seen, the person who's at a different point, a stage in their development. To me, we're doing the same thing to immigrants that our society has done to the unborn child. And I think we as Christians, especially Catholic Christians, who have said, no, I will love that person I have never met. I will stand for their life. I will support their mother in raising this child. I will, if necessary, take this child in myself, whether whether I feel capable of it or not. I will do whatever I have to do to save the life of this unborn child. That's what we need to be saying, to be consistent about our immigrant brothers and sisters. And we do it not because we think we're capable of it necessarily, but because it's right and because we know that God will support us, God will give us what we need in order to do what is right, to love our brothers and sisters. It's just that simple. It really is. That's what Jesus Christ teaches us over and over again. And we've just got to decide that to live this Christian faith of ours is not something for somebody else. It's not something that we can parse. It's just something we need to live fully every day as lovers of our brothers and sisters. It's that simple. And it's about having that trust, you know, that supernatural trust in Jesus. He's not going to put something in front of us that we can't handle. I mean, if we we believe he is the creator, right? We say creator of all things seen and unseen. Then guess what? Everything is his. All the money, all the resources, anything we might need. It's just a matter of us being able to accept, you know, that he'll give us what we need. Not necessarily what we want, but he'll yeah. give us what we need, especially when we step out on yeah. faith and in trust and act in love to try to help our neighbor, to try to help the person who's coming into the country to try to help the struggling mother, to try to help 
the child in her womb. All of these things come to play in a society that tells us over and over again, it whispers and sometimes it shouts that they're not worthy, yeah. right? I think you even say in your pastoral letter, this mystery of evil also includes the base belief that some of us are more important, deserving, and worthy than others. And I think that sums up so much of what we talked about with the unborn and um, with the people coming in at the border that we just think, I think in the in your pastoral letter, that you know, you don't matter. You you're not worthy. Yeah. And that's a problem. That's something that we have to continually fight. Yes. And as we become aware of it, that we are open to this continual conversion. Yes. Um, amen. And we have to have this right. And so and, and where we see hardness of heart among our co-religiousness, we need to help them not, you know, we need to help them break free of that. And you also wrote a pastoral letter on migration. You did advocacy for migrants at the border. And I'm not sure people understand why that should be a priority for us in the church and why it's a priority for you as a bishop. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, because we as Christians should always be looking for those who are vulnerable and those who are most in need. Mother Teresa taught us this so well, right? Mm-hmm. And those who are most in need, the poorest of the poor, have different peoples vying for that title, you know, yeah, in right, different right. times and in different places. Right now, my candidate, you know, among mm-hmm. others, are those who are arriving at, at our border because mm-hmm. they have fled their home that they loved. They've fled their family and community from, you know, been separated from them. As I say, with nothing, without an identity card, without a name, they've lost everything. They're my candidate for the prize, you know, of the poorest of the poor. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm sorry, but the way I read the gospel is they're, they're the ones that might get me to heaven. Hey, <laughs> you know, preach. Yes, yes, yes. If I serve them, you know, again, it, I can talk philosophical principles. I can talk the Constitution, if you want, and stuff like that a little bit. But it really comes down to me to basic Christianity. You know, read your Bible, <laughs> you know, read the gospel and, yeah, yeah. And, and see what it tells you. And so I'm Yes, I'm on a border diocese, and so I'm particularly aware of these issues, and I get mm-hmm. that. But by the same token, what I've been trying to point out to people lately is that it's this is not immigration is isn't just a border issue. The border is where we see the symptoms of the issue, okay. and the reality is something that is a human reality. It's a human issue. I don't know if you've ever had your DNA checked. Did you no, ever do that? I've not done that yet. No. Okay. <laughs> you know, but a lot of us have. I, I didn't mm-hmm. haven't personally. I've had some relatives that did. It's fascinating. But what it'll mm-hmm. trace is the history of migration of your family, right? Oh, right, you right, know? right. And we know the human race. Everybody's in agreement. We all came out of Africa. Right. Is that cool or what? Yeah, it's you super know? cool. <laughs> uh, and and filled the earth. Human history is a history of migration, Mm, Um, and it's a history fraught with pain and trial and suffering 
but people through history have had this need to move. And somehow we have to incorporate that into our self-understanding and in the way that nations relate to each other and so on. It's a reality. But if you really want to deal with migration, then you have to see that broader picture and you have to recognize the situation in the sending countries. Why are they leaving? Most human beings would not do that unless they had to. And then where are they arriving? How are they being received? You know, it's not as obvious in those places as it is here on the border. But my conviction is that we all have to deal with the poorest of the poor. And at least if you say they're not the only ones, true, at least Mm -hmm. they deserve honorable mention. And we as Christians need to be seeing that we're treating them well and we're going to be judged based upon our treatment of them because Jesus told us that. Yeah, that's uh, that he will, we will be judged on that. And I think about the responsibility of bishops and what you all have been entrusted with and what a, sometimes I'm like, oh my Lord, we have got to pray for our bishops and and really just. You do. Because what you all deal with, what you all face, what you all, basically you're defending us (laughs) and protecting us from the evil one. And I keep thinking about all the attacks and things that must come your way because of that. I even think about having published this pastoral letter about what happened in your diocese, how that gets a special attention to try to cause chaos and confusion and things like that, because what you said was so powerful and so true and to me so convicting, you know, when you read it. And so knowing that you deal with Okay, we we know that there are going to be those spiritual challenges, but on the human level, there's also the challenge of just dealing with all of these issues among your flock and even among your brother bishops. And so how do you deal with all these things as a bishop today in the Roman Catholic Church in the United States? Yeah. Well, thank you for raising that concern. You know, the my involvement in the pro-life movement has really helped me. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I bet. Mm-hmm. Because I'm kind of used to being involved in issues that are sensitive and that bring a lot of condemnation and yeah. what have you, you know. But all through my life, I've had to be asking myself, do you believe this? Mm. Are you just talking when you preach? Mm. Or do you believe this? And if you believe it, are you acting on what you believe? You know, Mm -hmm. these are fundamental things that every preacher needs to raise with those to whom he preaches. Mm -hmm. But how could I live with myself if I wasn't in some way living it? And Mm -hmm. I don't presume, believe me, I fall so far short. I'm just trying, you know, where I recognize the call and my shortcoming. I'm just trying to live it. And I do take courage in that quote from the poet that is in my pastoral letter. You know, what can they threaten me with except resurrection? (laughs) Resurrection. (laughs) You know, I've always admired the martyrs. Me too, me too. You know, I love their stories and I've been so inspired by them. I'm not anxious to be burned at the stake anytime soon. (laughs) 
Or beheaded. Uh, yeah, or any of that right. stuff. I'm, right. not, I'm not looking for it exactly, <laughs> you know, like St. Francis did when he went to preach to the Moors. Yeah. But in my own way, I need to live this faith. Yeah. And I can't deny what I've learned and what I've read. And so I've been such a thin-skinned individual through my life, you know, so it hasn't been easy. <laughs> but that conviction is a gift, maybe, you know, I think that, that comes with faith. And I hope that God will help me to take the risk. Oh, yeah, to take the risk. Hmm. And I love that you say you ask yourself well, if you, the question, if you believe this, then how are you living it? Yeah. And, I, I, and that also reminds me of, they say that the— that there was a question that saved the angels, right? Michael, who is like God, right? And if we ask these questions of ourselves, maybe this helps to remind us of why we do what we do, what we should be doing, all of these things, and to hopefully not be afraid, to not be so crippled by fear that we do step out and do these things. And I hope your example and your letter, which I which will link in the show notes, your pastoral letter will inspire many to wake up and to do something to defend the human dignity of their brother and sister, because that's what we're called to do. Gloria, if you have a moment, I'd just like to follow on that a, a second. You know, this shooter came down, and his avowed purpose was to kill Mexicans. Anybody with brown skin was his definition of, of a Mexican, apparently. Mexican. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, he didn't just shoot Mexicans. He shot one person who is a German citizen living in Mexico. And he shot and wounded terribly an African-American woman, a young African-American woman. I just saw her yesterday. She's Mm. walking with a cane, but she's hanging in there. She's the daughter of a Protestant minister in town. Just Mm. wonderful person. We're all wounded Mm. when one group is we were all shot on that day. Yes. We, we need to take it personally. Yes. Because these are our brothers and sisters. Our brothers and sisters. Those aren't just words. We should take it personally because they belong to us. And mm-hmm. uh, if we do that, then perhaps we can deal with these vexing, deeply rooted issues in our society and make it a more just and holy one. And you did something very special at the end of your pastoral letter. After discussing this grave evil, you then asked that this man's life be spared. Mm. You then said, please do not execute him. And to me, that was such an example of love and you invite people who have, you know, racist attitudes, you invite them to come, come into the church, put these things down. And it was not, your whole letter was an example of love. You know, while you talked about these evils, you never acted as if the people who committed these evils are beyond conversion and redemption. And then to end with inviting them, come to us, be with us. We will love you. And then inviting and asking the state to not take this man's life. I was blown away because sometimes people feel a rage, but they misdirect it and they want a vengeance that isn't good, right? And the example, I just wanted to mention that because that just blew me away as I got to the end of the pastoral letter, that instead of calling for their 
death and condemnation and expulsion from polite society. You invite us all to love. You invite us all to love. You know what? I was very angry when this happened, Mm -hmm. and I still can be, Mm -hmm. but I was taught what I wrote by the victims. Mm. Oh my gosh. I've never witnessed that amazing Christian witness like I witnessed it on that day. When I heard the, and I can't speak for all of the victims, but the ones that I was talking to, one family was saying, we feel so badly for the family of the shooter. Oh, what must they be? What must they be going through? You know, and they themselves have have said on many occasions, we don't want him killed. How can I then be less Christian than they? (laughs) I tell you, sometimes the the grace God gives these people and the suffering and the good that they by their witness, how they can inspire us as well to deal with our righteous anger. I mean, we should be angry with these kinds of horrible things. That's right. But to deal with it in a way that doesn't further divide the human family, that doesn't further rend the fabric of the human family, is something I'll be meditating on for sure and praying about. And I just want to thank you so much, Bishop Seitz, for joining me and having this honest conversation, this conversation where I think we really were vulnerable in talking about some issues that uh, are plaguing us and, and, and dealing with, you know, the harms of past evils that still play into today. So I want to thank you for joining. Thank you, Gloria. Pleasure to be with you. You've been a witness like that for me, too. Oh, I'm so grateful to you. Glory to God. I don't even feel worthy, please. But thank you for that. Uh, That is very, very generous of you. So I am glad that we were able to talk. Thank you so much. God bless you. God bless. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Look, I'm trying to do my part to speak about these issues openly and faithfully, and you have a part in that too. If you're getting informed and inspired by our conversations, then other people probably will too. So please share an episode with a friend or family member. Help me get the good word out there into the parishes and schools and communities, basically wherever you are. And be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. And please leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. Oh, and by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Sebastian Gomes and engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.